committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now we welcome back to RCR, Ivor Cummins. Many of you will know Ivor. For those that don't, Ivor is a biochemical engineer. His career speciality has been leading large worldwide teams in complex problem-solving activities. Since March 2020, Ivor has dedicated his analytical and biochemical expertise to the deep and revealing analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic situation. Welcome to RCR, Ivor. Thanks a lot, Nick. Great to be back. Yeah, so um, you're, we're going to co- cover a few things here. What's happening in in the craziness of Europe? You know, it, it's often a, a perplexing place for New Zealanders at the other side of the world, and um, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening at the moment. You know, a lot of things around cancel culture. The the um, WHO is talking about global vax passes. Um, then we've got something that you'll know about, uh, Irish hate speech laws. And uh, what is it with Ireland? They're always wanting to go first. You're the first to ban smoking in pubs and confused everybody, and now you're piling into these hate speech laws. Yeah, well, I said this long before COVID. I used to say five, six years ago or more, uh, Ireland is a vassal state of big pharma. Mm. And Ireland, 60% of our GDP is biotech and pharma. And all the politicians at this stage have become just drones of the EU and big corporate. We got a lot of corporate jobs for the boys, jobs for the people, and that's just the way they roll. So they've always rolled over for any leader-y type stuff from EU, from the commission, big you know, tech. like you said, smoking. Yeah, big tech. Isn't, isn't Google headquartered or, you know, domiciled financially in Ireland? I believe so. I'm not sure the exact financial because usually like my corporate, there's actually an office in the Bahamas or something with a couple of directors and they do the whole double Dutch tax thing. So I don't know the exact figures, but we're 12% corporate tax on enormous profits. Yeah. But I believe the day, the re- realistic tax rate ends up being a few percent with all the shenanigans. Right. The money laundering, let's call it that. <laughs> yeah. Tax dodge. Yeah. So, so what you're saying then is that Ireland, because of these corporate interests from whatever industry, but just because of the corporate tax structure, you've you've inherited these vast global corporates who are now using Ireland as a a lead point, the bellwether for one of a better term, uh, to trial new and interesting things to subjugate citizens. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, essentially that that's that's pretty much it. The Irish, you know, had a boom economy, you know, the Celtic Tiger and all this stuff. And in fairness, there was benefits from being the vassal state for sure. Mm. But yeah, we're we're first out the gate. I believe in terms of negotiating pharmaceutical prices for Europe, I believe we have some key role in the EU, you know, because we're so linked. Yeah, nudge, uh, nudge, and wink, yeah, wink. We're very linked. Yeah. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. This is going to be the price. And look, Ireland's already signed up for that. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we've gone woke to hell. And it's not a natural thing of the Irish. The Irish are not really at all racist per se. Certainly not anti uh, kind of gay or any of that stuff. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, like the rest of the world, there was prejudice. 
That all got sorted 20 years ago, naturally, because the Irish are decent people, generally. So that problem, there was no problem for decades. You know, I've been in management for nearly 30 years. That problem was fixed. But then we saw suddenly from the corporates and everywhere and public servants, wokeism got huge. And like it was into a vacuum. There was no problem to fix. So I used to wonder 10 years ago, What's driving this? Is it commercial? Is it just you make you sell more sneakers because it's cool and it's it's new? <laughs> Maybe the I LGBT community it. likes no. sneakers. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I just thought what because I'm a corporate management type. I, I thought what's driving it because it's, mm. it, it's not grassroots because there's no real demand as such. Why is it being driven relentlessly? You don't even uh, hate course, the English we, anymore. Yeah, well, 800 years of subjugation, though, have left us very good to be a vassal state, too. So there's a bit of cultural history. (laughs) But the key point was, Nick, that why is it happening? I was curious because I'm into root cause, and that includes psychology, geopolitics, uh, technically, obviously. And now we know why it's happening. Because it's all coming from the top. So you talk about hate speech, you talk about, you know, passports, ID 2020, COVID itself. I could go on all day. It all comes ultimately from Rockefeller Foundation in the 50s, through League of Nations, uh, United Nations, WHO, Trilateral Commission, Mm. uh, and all the things they set up have grown over 70 years just into an enormous technocracy. There's no conspiracy theory. It's yeah. just grown into a bloated technocracy. You know, you look back at the um, the old uh, cartoons from the past with Standard Oil with the tentacles everywhere, and it's that's what you're saying, isn't it? That there's these tentacles that stem from Rockefeller and the money that he's had coming from that have now infiltrated all of these NGOs and uh, corporates. You know, I, I haven't had a chance to watch your whole video, but is there a link between the Rockefeller Foundation and the WEF in any way, or is it, or is the WEF morphing into a super sort of new modern Rockefeller Foundation trying to put their tentacles and, you know, you hear Klaus Schwab talking about, we have penetrated the cabinets, you know, and all of this, you know, he's almost a bond villain type front man. He's clearly not the puppet master. There's somebody else that's controlling it. He's just the front man. But he, you know, he's got all these unfortunate turns of phrase that penetrates the cabinets, you know. Yeah. Is there a well, link yeah. there? Well, not just a link. I mean, essentially, Rockefeller Foundation and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which was John D. Rockefeller's sons, uh, four of them. One of them was Nelson Rockefeller. He became the vice president of the USA. David Rockefeller was massive in Chase Banking, the biggest bank banks. And they had massive power and they were the richest family in America. So in the 50s, they kicked off. But they they whelped or gave birth to the World Economic Forum. They're not just connected. It, it came from their loins. And, so, and that's so it's how, their bastard child that's now infecting. Yes. It is their bastard sociopath running rampage. Well, they are. They are sociopaths, so aren't they? Well, Dr. Nordengard, who I, I discovered all this from, the full, it's all documented this history and in the Rockefeller Foundation archives. So there's not there's zero conspiracy theory in anything I'll discuss today. That's important to know. Yeah, yeah. It's all documented. But 
the key uh, pathway was, yes, they, the Rockefellers essentially set up League of Nations. They uh, paid for, and on their land, the United Nations building was first built in '46. Mm. Uh, they set up the Trilateral Commission, massively influential, full of all the top politicians, leaders, and they set up multiple organizations like that. But the key thing they did out of Harvard, which is a hotbed of internationalism driven by Rockefeller, they brought in Kissinger. They identified Henry Kissinger as a key individual. Right. And they were right. He turned out, obviously, to create the 1970s inflation explosion and the oil price explosion and all the proxy wars. So very powerful figure. But Kissinger, after Kissinger, they identified Klaus Schwab in Harvard way back over 50 years ago wow. as a really useful person. And they got him to set up uh, the European economic kind of foundation, I think it was, in 73. And in 87, when they had got traction and loads of young leaders and they'd brought in a lot of leader types, politicians, and they had traction, they switched the name in 87 to the World Economic Forum. And that's when Rockefeller's vision went global. So what so what you've got here is a bunch of sociopaths, some could even qualify as psychopaths, who are aligning themselves with the narcissism of politicians, creating this new organization that is sociopathic in its attempts to control things and narcissistic in terms of making sure that they're at the forefront of everything that's happening with the young leaders, Jacinda Ardern being a former young leader you know, graduate of the WEF, Trudeau's another one, all into the infiltrating all of these these organizations and then unleashing what I had in an earlier interview this morning uh, with, with a guy, um, we coined the term cultural narcissism, where the promotion of the self is more important than having a cohesive society, which is why you've got all these divisive communities that are being set up around the world to have a voice about particular things when there is no community for that, you know, and, and this is why we're seeing this transgender um, agenda being promoted by the corporates. And there's just no clamoring of that by the general public. It's, it's media and, and, uh, and the, in these organizations that are pushing what we've described as cultural narcissism on everybody and in, in the process, dividing society and creating unrepairable rifts, which means that that's easier for them to control us with. Is that a the, fair assessment? These, Nick, that, that's fair enough. Now, just one quick clarification. Nordengard would, would make the point he did to me when I mentioned evil, and you could say sociopathic. Uh, he did say they don't perceive themselves as evil. Oh, no. uh, and they have quoted in their archives in the 50s that they have been placed by fate uh, that to create a new world order and to manage the world because they are the rich and they are the managers and the technocrats and local governments and, and politicians are not capable. The people are not capable. So certainly you could say that's narcissism. They certainly have no empathy for the people. And you could certainly say kind of sociopathy at some level, but they perceive themselves as just being the justified leadership being, class. Or in the case of Jacinda Ardern, being kind and empathetic. Oh, that, that's uh, all an act. I, mean, that's, I, I know that's, it is. I mean, I wrote an yeah. article which is 
quite well known in New Zealand. I called it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I explained all the politicians that I've met in New Zealand, all the prime ministers that I've met in over the years that I've been involved in politics, from a very small boy up to you know my advanced age now. And I outlined them all, you know, um, Robert Muldoon, David Longy, Helen Clark, John Key, all of these people I've met, you know, had dinner with them or lunches with them, including Jacinda Ardern. I had, had, a, had a lunch with her in 2008 before she was even an MP, right? Yeah. And my overriding impression of her was that she was as dumb as a bag of hammers. And yeah. all, she, all she was was a front person who had a collection of bumper sticker slogans. But her entire yeah. thing was a, an act, a shtick, in, a, in other words, of kindness but of all of the all of those MPs and politicians that I met over the years, I said a lot of them had good intentions. They might have been woefully ill-equipped to deliver what they were professing to do, like Robert Muldoon, for example, with um, you know beggaring the nation. Which these days, if you talk about the levels of debt that he incurred for the country, it would it would it would be a, a rounding error now, and the sort of things that the Ardern Hipkins government has done here. Um, but back then it was a lot, and he was ill-equipped to handle all of those power, those shocks that you were talking about that Kissinger issued in. You know the oil shock, the the wars that um, originated as a result of it. He was ill-equipped to deal with that, but his heart was in the right place, trying to do good. In the end, ironically, you know he decided to spend multiple billions of dollars on building infrastructure, which are which. Everyone opposed from on the left-wing side of politics in New Zealand, the Labour Party and the forerunner of the Greens all opposed these things, which were leading to energy self-sufficiency and renewable power generation and all of this. Ironically, they're all now using that to power their electric cars. But the point I was making is that all of these politicians all the way through thought they were doing good. They did some bad things, but it wasn't deliberate. They were trying. But I argued in my article that Jacinda Ardern was actually evil and that what she did and what she did during the pandemic was actually evil. And it's like, you know, the first day it was published, like 300,000 people read it. And I think now the views on that post is over 600,000. So out of a population of 5 million in New Zealand, that's quite, a, quite an impact. And it still is being shared around now. And I argued that she was, in fact, evil, that she didn't have good intentions. Yeah. She had ill intent on dividing the nation, um, using the COVID policies to essentially run a, a, a bloodless coup where power was concentrated into the hands of just five or so ministers and everybody else was isolated and segregated and split off from that. And then there's all of the divisive policies that came in with the mandates, the vaccine passes, um, all of those sorts of things that she said she would never do. And then did, you know, and 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 that echoes what you're saying here about the the tentacles of the Rockefeller Foundation permeating their way into all of these NGOs and, gov and governmental organisations and corporates with evil intent. Yeah, for sure, for sure, Nick. And um, I mean, I just think I I used to read voraciously when I was young and uh, Lord of the Rings and, and and many other the classics. But remember. Uh, Smegol was yeah. his real name originally My and precious. became Gollum. My yes, precious. yes, our precious. Well, he obviously became uh, sociopathic and evil under the influence of the ring. But originally, he was a nice little hobbit, right? So 
I view these useful idiots as many of them just starting out greedy and wanting, you know, political power, but but not in a bad way, not in a particularly bad way. And then over time, power corrupts and huge power corrupts hugely and they become twisted caricatures. So not only useful idiots with limited uh, talent, but they become tools then of the system. And Jacinda Cern, uh, Macron in France, you know what happened during COVID in France? Mm. Uh, Trudeau in, in Canada, the Chancellor of Austria, one of the only countries that did full-bore mandates on vaccines as opposed to coercion. I could go on all day. There's nearly 4,000 young global leaders of the World Economic Forum since 1992. And you know who was one of the first? Bill Gates, 1992, young right. global leader. Yeah. yeah. So this is a He knows massive, a thing or two about viruses, vehicle. though. The thing about mm-hmm. Bill Gates is he knows a thing or two about viruses. He does. Hey, <laughs> I, I was talking to Professor Richard Werner the other day, and I interviewed him, and I'll send the link. And he told me something I didn't actually know, because I mentioned in ID2020, and this actually is very important for the listeners, ID2020 was set off in maybe 17 or 18 to be ready. And in 2017, the EU also had the plan, five-year plan for vaccines before covid And in 2021, they had planned for global passports for travel with vaccines before COVID. But what he told me I didn't know, even though I've done massive research on this, I mentioned that ID2020 was funded by Rockefeller Foundation, right? Yeah. By Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which Werner said, which is Bill Gates. I said, yes. And by Microsoft, which is Bill Gates. So because I said he has such strong links to Rockefeller, personal friends and linked, it's, pr- it's practically all Bill Gates. And you know what Werner told me? He said, ah, well, yes, you, you do know that uh, Bill Gates' father was a key, key lawyer for the Rockefeller family and very involved. And of course, when they wanted to get into software back in the uh, 70s and 80s, they would have identified that as a technology that was crucial and they'd yep. need their tentacles in it. Yep. They would have needed a young person because it's a whole, you know, software, cool, young thing. And he said, I would guess that they went to uh, Bill's father, Bill Sr., and said, what's your son's age again? Is he interested in software? We might use him. And then they would have just brought him in and all the Rockefeller money would have got the IBM contracts and arranged everything around Bill. I guess that was the king making process. Probably. Yeah, well, you know, Occam's razor su- suggests that that might be true. You know, yeah. people come up with all sort of co- sorts of complicated, uh, you know, ideas about things. It's actually really quite simple. It's just about control and power and money. Yeah, that's it. And that's what it comes. So, where does this? What does this mean for the these hate speech laws in Ireland? What what what's happening with that? Because it's going to come here, right? And things that oh, happen yeah. in Ireland happen in the UK. And then they come here, and people like me are saying, "We don't. We need hate speech laws like we need cancer, right? There's no need for this sort of nonsense. It's like, what is hate speech? It, you know, it's hurty feelings, really, isn't it? But but what's happening in Ireland, so that we can be warned? Yeah, they Helen McEntee, the Justice Minister, came in, and again, classic uh, pattern. Straight into wokeism, straight into all the uh, corporate agendas that that we've talked about for for a bit there, and she she's ramming through this hate speech law. It went through the Irish Doyle, the first house, 
and it's now going through the Senate and it was rubber stamped through the Doyle. And in the Senate, because there was a backlash, countless emails to senators and awareness, because we've got a movement now because COVID woke a lot of people up, as you're well aware. Yeah. So the movement identified this threat. I will tell you, Nick, even I, not easily astonished after COVID, was astonished when I read the legislation. Orwell, you know, couldn't a big brother could not have written it more horrific. It it's like it it the, the, the actual wording in itself is a breach of the constitution. The wording in the legislation, just reading it, is a breach against all constitutional values in Ireland. It I give you the worst of it pretty much. At any complaint of a single guard or policeman, which can come from anyone, not through a commissioner or a top warrant, through a single policeman, a complaint, a question about an individual potentially having, not sharing, not proliferating, having potentially hateful material. Possibly. Possibly. And hateful is not defined. So hateful (laughs) can be anything they want it to be. What? You hate the government. It's mad. They can come to your house, enter your house and take all of your equipment, laptops, phones, printed material. The legislation says this. And if anything is encrypted, it is built into the legislation that it is a crime to not provide the pin code or encryption key. That's right from the start when when they come in your door. Yeah, because someone dra- somewhere dra- said seems rather draconian. It's beyond rather because it's a breach of the constitution in the current r- written word in the legislation. It doesn't even have to be uh, used to breach the constitution. It's a full constitutional breach in its wording. It's thought crime, minority so, report, clearly. Yeah. So, so what's happened here is that these governments around the world, in Ireland in particular, where they have a docile population. New Zealand's the same. We have a docile. We don't get yeah. many, very many people get angry about anything, right? It it, it reminds it reminds me of, of you know that have Father Ted TV program where they're protesting. They're going oh, down with this sort of thing. You know, you can probably say it yeah. better. <laughs> down with this. That's as bad as angry that people in Ireland get about their politicians because yeah. they're docile. These laws can then and they have learned this from COVID as well. We can subjugate the population with a few stern words and some subliminal messages and and the threat of a big stick. That mostly they'll do what they're told. And they go, Oh, well, if the government's saying it, well, it must be true. And so they've conditioned these politicians into learning to take diabolical liberties with our rights and our freedoms that we've enjoyed for you know, however long since the constitution was promulgated and or, or, or the country was formed or whatever. And they've trampled and continue to trample and they really enjoy the comfort of those jackboots as they stomp all over our freedoms and our rights. And people, yeah, have, because- people have to learn to say no. People have to learn to, to stand up and say, no, you're not going to do that. But what's it going to take? And- well, I was at a science summit in Amsterdam and we discussed all this at length. So I was giving a kind of a keynote on Saturday morning, this, the first main day, and it was on problem, reaction, solution and covered a lot of what you said. And I covered the hate speech laws 
And I covered back to the Reichstag burning in 30s Germany that got the National Socialists into power, you know, a false flag. And I covered the Bay of Tonkin, which got the Tonkin Resolution in the U.S. Senate to go to Vietnam. And I covered the Iraq War and the weapons of mass destruction. So I covered all of the big examples of problem, reaction, solution. Create a massive problem, get a reaction from the public, and whoa, we're all scared. Use the media. And then your solution is authoritarian power or a war. Yeah, whatever. Well, it's, it's like they've read a combination of Mein Kampf and uh, and and Joseph Goebbels' um, propaganda, yeah. you know, it's like they like this is the Bible. We're just going to. They did that all with, um, with our uh, COVID stuff. But yeah. you know, you mentioned the Minority Report and in with the hate speech laws and this this kind of pre crime thing that's happening, and it brings up you know the case that we've just had this week um, of Nigel Farage having his bank accounts frozen and his banking facilities disestablished for no reason whatsoever. The bank has just said, sorry, uh, Nigel, uh, we don't want you as a customer anymore. Thanks for coming. See you later. Is this part of this cancel culture? We can't have these opinionated people with contrarian views. Um, We need to silence them. The best way to silence them is cut their money off. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's there's an interesting aspect to this. Yes, it's the cancel culture, but, again, we have to remember the root cause of this is coming from the top. So not, not a secret cabal, not at all. It's all documented. It's coming from the central banks, the Bank of International Settlements at the very top, and all of the other organizations we mentioned, Rockefeller, Trilateral, Bilderberg, WEF. You could go on all day and the foundations and the NGOs and this big hydra of technocratic control. So it's coming from the top. There's no question about that. Only an idiot would question that. So when these things happen, they're not grassroots. So a ba- a bank takes action because someone rang you know, the general manager or the managing director conversations came up hey hey this we we can't have this guy yeah, yeah, but it comes through a chain from the top so yeah he single-handedly good... upset the eu and so he has to he has to die yeah, you know virtually and metaphorically he's a dead man to us and if your bank wants to keep operating uh well you know what to do yeah and you know it was probably handed across at a bloody golf course or the party, you know, caviar and oh, come and on, bring it, it was in a smoke-filled room. Oh no, that's right, island bandos. You can <laughs> yeah, like, This is what I keep saying about New Zealand politics: is that it all went to hell when we when we banned having smoking indoors. You know, and <laughs> yeah. and, and decisions were made in smoke-filled rooms. You know, and with with you know glasses of good Irish whiskey. You know, because you don't want to drink oh, that yeah. Scottish muck, right? Yes, yeah, so. so <laughs> So, so smoke-filled rooms and and whiskey have made a whole lot of good decisions in the world, and we've abolished all of that. And so now we've got the rubbish that we've got now. And I'm saying, bring back smoke-filled rooms. Well, I I, I kind of agree with you, and I made that point many many years ago. That obviously I used to smoke on and off many many years ago, but uh, it is it is very bad for health. It's a personal decision, and I guess you shouldn't force other people. But the way that they wouldn't allow a standard smoking room out the back that all had to be open and all. Why didn't they just allow a room for smokers? And if non-smokers wanted to go in, let them go in. Yeah. So, you know, it's freedom. It's see, freedom. I, see, I, I, I only smoke cigars. And people say to me, 
why do you smoke cigars? It's bad for your health. Actually, the reason why I smoke cigars is because of my health. And they say, what? What the hell? And this might interest you given your study of modern chronic disease. Four years, nearly five years ago, I had a stroke. A lot of stress, you know, people suing me, stuff like that. And um, I ended up with a, a quite a severe stroke and was told by the neurosurgeon, you know, one of the top neurologists in New Zealand that I'd never use my right arm again. That's the one I'm waving to you with. And, mm. um, and so when I was in hospital the first day, you know, trying to stabilize everything, is, I had a, a pulse rate, you know, a blood pressure rate of 220 over 140 or something like that. I, technically, mm. I should have been dead, right? But I wasn't. Mm. So it didn't kill me. And so I started researching, well, what can I do to solve this problem of the stroke? And um, I very quickly cottoned on to the fact that nicotine, far from being the evil drug that's been, we're told, is actually quite beneficial. And one of the key things about nicotine is that it aids in neuroplasticity. And the reason why you have strokes is because your, your neuroplasticity has become hardened. And then eventually with the pressure and all of that, something gives. And so you, you actually need to have flexible brain that allows you to, and nicotine does that. And I thought, well, wearing nicotine patches is just a little bit gay. I don't really want to want to do that. <laughs> and, and I hate cigarettes because they're just awful, right? But I, yeah, do, but I do like cigars and they smell delicious. And I do like pi um, pipes and I try that. Mm. So yeah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start smoking a cigar a day. A cigar a day is the equivalent nicotine of a packet of cigarettes in one go. Mm. So and it was it's the, absorbed through the mouth. Yeah. So it's the fastest way to get nicotine into your bloodstream, which aids in neuroplasticity. And I credit my recovery from my stroke when I was told I would never use my right arm again. I'm now using it shooting and hunting and doing everything normally. Mm. And and I put that down to the nicotine. But that's an interesting aside. But but well, so some, sometimes it, they, they tell us things are bad for us, but they actually are lying. Yeah, and, the lies in nutrition and health. I, I mean, I could talk for the next three days nonstop, quite literally almost, except for sleep, on all the lies. Mm. It's outrageous, but it's just business, not a huge amount of evil, well, no mainly looks business. At it. You know, you've looked at, at, at the root causes of these modern chronic diseases, right? Now, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong here. At the, we didn't really have an obesity problem until after World War II. Well, really, when they brought in the new dietary guidelines to eat vegetable oils and to cut your fat and to cut your animal foods and, and cut your butter and, and eat more, grains more, and eat more healthy wheat. whole grains. Yeah. That's what brought it in. And because, why did they bring that in? They brought it in at the end of World War II because no, when, you're well, when you're feeding massive amounts of soldiers, right, you feed yeah. them things that are easy to prepare, like breads and grains and things like that. So they geared up for a massive world war with these producers that were producing massive amounts of grains, and then their war ended, and we didn't have to feed all those soldiers anymore. And so they went, mm, we've got a bit of a problem here. We've got this well, massive su surplus of supply. I know, we'll change that little pyramid, and we'll just put all that at the top mm, and make people that, eat that. That, that, that. that certainly could be a precursor of the way industry was set up and the subsidies for like mm. fructose corn syrup. But actually what happened was the Americans stayed pretty healthy up until the 60s and 70s. And then the American Heart Association and Selkies, the uh, researcher, 
the low fat craze started based on fat being bad because cholesterol was bad. And in the 80s, they had the consensus commission on cholesterol being the main cause of heart disease, which is a joke. And the whole industry was told to start making vegetable oils and we'd take away natural fats and oils and we'd eat more healthy whole grains. So they handed industry a gift. The cheapest... substances on the planet (laughs) are now what we want you to make to feed our population vegetable oils which are poisonous and refined grains wheats and sugars yep and you know the 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 best health that i was in was when i went through you know they call it paleo now or or you know keto yeah fancy names right but basically it you know, the, the best health that I was in when I was eating nothing but meat and bacon and cheese yeah. and fats and things like that, I just shed kilos overnight. Um, and, yeah. you know, my, my cholesterol came down. It, it was the complete opposite of what the doctor was telling me. <laughs> right? And I found that out for myself. And I, and I still to this day, I try and keep my carb lo- levels a lot lower than most people have. Um, yeah, and, that's important. And, and that's the key thing there. And like you once your body readjusts to the way it was actually made to process food, because you've got to go back to Neanderthal times, you know, that we didn't eat all those grains and things like that. We ate no. animals. We killed a- animals and we ate them and we used the fats and we did all of those sorts of things. And we supplemented it with colorful, you know, things like to make add extra taste and things like that. But it wasn't the whole diet. Yeah, well, we if, could talk hours about that too. Yeah, but well, well, one, two, two brief points. If 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 uh, you allow yeah. me, Cam, one brief point to keep it simple for listeners: the devil's triad is sugars, refined grains, or wheats, and vegetable oils, which are actually seed oils extracted from seeds with hexane in chemical processes. Right. So, sugar, refined grains, and seed oils are the devil's triad, and that makes up most of your processed food, which is 80% of the supermarket, which is 60% of all calories that modern Western people eat. And, and The majority of calories being eaten are the devil's triad, which cause chronic disease. It's as simple as that. There's other problems in the world. That is the primary root cause. And the second thing is, I often say to people, and I said it to Dr. Ron Rolsdale in uh, early April 2020, we had a big discussion on COVID. It turned out we were 100% correct on all the stuff we were talking about, like immunology and leptin levels, cytokines. Turned out we were 100% correct, especially him. He's the genius. And we just mused on if the whole world right now in early April only had meat, fish, and eggs, magically, there was no other food. COVID would be solved within days because if you could only eat meat, fish, and eggs, your insulin would collapse, your leptin would collapse, your uh, immune issues with the likes of COVID or flu or anything would collapse. And basically, your obesity also would start a long collapse over the next decade. And diabetes would collapse. And heart disease and strokes would hugely come down. You better watch out, Ivan. They'll be shutting your bank accounts off. But, you know, the funny thing is, right, (laughs) Through all of this COVID stuff, when we had lockdowns and and masks and mandates and and all that mm. bollocks, right? Mm. I didn't I didn't follow the lockdowns. I went and had lunch no, with my here. mates, and right, I didn't wear masks. In fact, I mocked mm. people. Right? I was challenged in in supermarkets. You should have a mask on, and I just tell people that they should mind their own business. You know, 
Yeah. But I've never caught COVID. Right? I've never yeah. caught it, right? Um, everyone I know who's been vaccinated has had it multiple times. Of course. Right? But but then I look at it, what do I what do I what do I do in my life that's different from what all those other people do? Well, every morning I have three eggs for breakfast. Duh. Right? That's three, a good three eggs yeah. for breakfast, right? What what do I take with what do I have with my eggs? Nothing. I just have eggs. Or if I'm yeah. gonna splurge out, I might have bacon, right? But I have eggs. The second thing is the supplements I take. Right? I take zinc. I take in a, you know, neck. Uh, I take vitamin D three, and you know they say I take one of these a day. Well, I take four or five. <laughs> mm. Whatever they say the number is on the thing, I usually double it or triple it. And so I take That's all correct of this for D. The guideline is max. I think two thousand and one thousand for some people. Four thousand is the nominal. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And so I do that and zinc and all of these things. And I've never caught COVID. I've been in cars with people with COVID. I've been in meetings with them. I've had lunch with them sitting beside me coughing and spluttering, and I haven't caught COVID. And I have to put it down to the fact that it's my lifestyle. It's what I eat and what I put into my body, and that has kept it away, which makes a complete joke of all of these expensive vaccines and everything else that goes along with it. And you you just have to look at some countries like uh, India and Uttar Pradesh and what they did, looked at the bill that it was going to be to to vaccinate. And the government said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to give everybody, Sorry. yeah, we're going to give everybody vitamin D3, zinc, um, and, and ivermectin, and we're going to give them a month's worth of that, and uh, we'll be fine. And you know what? They were. Mm. You know? Yeah. The whole thing, the whole thing was so absurd, Cam. I, <laughs> it was. I don't, I'm just trying to think because obviously I can't keep going on with all the, all the stuff, but it's basically like you got trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions and you bought everyone in the world a chocolate teapot. Yeah, That's exactly. about as useful as the vaccines were. Yeah, They may have helped elderly people who were the only cohort really affected. And the data suggests that that's, that's hard to even claim. Utterly, utterly a waste of money, largely. And I got all my vaccines. And even in, in I think it was 16, 2016, I got a few vaccines going to China because I never even questioned vaccines. No. So the company doctor said, oh, there's a couple of vaccines. I didn't even ask her what they were. I was just chatting to her and she slapped yeah, them sure, in. No That's how them. not anti-vax I am. Yeah. I was but when COVID came along, this is insanity, as you know. Well, uh, yeah, I got a mate who's a molecular biologist, and when this all kicked off and they started talking about mRNA, he said, "Cam, don't go near that. Just, just <laughs> don't." I said, "Well, tell it, tell, tell me in in layman's terms." He says, "Well, you you've been involved in computers and you know worked mm. in banks and computing systems." He says, "What mRNA is like is a piece of code that you're going to now write that will apply to every computer known to man." and work flawlessly and seamlessly in every computer, despite the differing offer operating systems and all the other bits of software that are all on there. And they're going to tell you that that piece of software is going to make everybody's computer from mainframes to Macs to Windows PCs to Linux to all of these different yeah. things and, and all of the word processes and every other piece of software and browsers and everything, it's all going to fit into that and work perfectly. And I said, well, well I used to be a change manager for a major bank. And I've never met a programmer yet that hasn't made a mistake. Yeah. What if they make a mistake with that mRNA? And he goes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And yeah. yet it's a- they made these vaccines 
and said, this is good for every single, it's good for my DNA, good for your DNA, good for that guy's DNA, good for that Kids old DNA. Yeah? Everybody. Kids DNA, down yeah. to under two years old. I mean, yeah. it's a great analogy, Cam. I must say it's a great analogy, but um, it's just insane. I mean, it's like, okay, so it's like you gave everyone a chocolate teapot, right? Completely useless yeah. uh, that they didn't need, but that the chocolate teapot was laced with contaminants and, and other crap, depending on the batch. The, the it, spout, it, the spout was made with cyanide. And <laughs> yeah, the, now the handle has one warning. <laughs> yeah, I was. Would you believe, Cam? I'm not joking. I was thinking of saying strychnine or something, and I, I didn't. And the reason I didn't was we got to be very careful. Yeah. The vaccines have caused no question, and it is documented in the trials, maybe one in 800 people, best guess, significant side effects. They've caused morbidity, illnesses, clots in people, but probably only one in hundreds at a significant level. And I will not claim that there's mass death from vaccines and many people opposing the COVID nonsense will. And I just say it's a dangerous thing to claim because so far myself, Dr. Mike Eads and some of the best stats we have, guys, yes, they had an effect on mortality increase, but the claims that it's huge, it's very hard to separate from the effects, from the insanity of the lockdowns, uh, the masks yeah. and the psychological I, torture. I guess I'm on the same page as you. I, I would qualify that a bit and say we haven't seen the end of this yet. That's fair. Because once you put that in your arm, you can't take it out. The... And we don't know what that's going to do in 10 years' time. We don't know what now, that's going to do in 15 years' time. We don't know what that's doing in 20 years' time. And in 20 years' time, I think people like us are going to be seen as, you know, soothsayers. Like, how did they know this stuff? Hmm. Now, but, but that remains to be seen. You know, it's too early. It, We're only two years out from it being this mass inoculation. True, but... But we have enough time now that one can surmise. Mm. And there definitely could be long-term unintended consequences. In fact, this is such an insane rollout of a new technology platform, which you described. And, and I go along with that description. God only knows. So far, me and my immunologist network worldwide and, and other experts tend to have some kind of a consensus that something major uh, detrimental may not happen in a very noticeable way over the 10 years. Um, the damage may be mostly in the first couple of years with autoimmunity, clots, all kinds of other problems and long-term conditions created that will go long-term. But I try and reassure people who had to get it because of their job. Yep. I, I do try and reassure them and say, I wouldn't really be terrified if I had had to get it. I, I'd be, it's illegal and criminal, the highest level of criminality to coerce these new technologies. Yet, I'm not totally terrified about them. But at a population level, you're right. The point is well made. A new technology platform that's self-replicating, that pools in ovaries, testes, and heart muscle, this is all proven. It, it immediately goes around the body, depending on your physiology and your personal makeup, your yeah. personal kind of computer. Yeah. Um, 
And we know it's inflammatory, causes damage and may have very long life because they put in specific genetic kind of codons and flags to stop uh, the normal breakdown of such molecular macromolecules because that was what they wanted. They didn't want it to just be just, just break down. And that may have tenacity and long-term effects. And then the RNA they pulled from the massive vats where they have trillions of RNA and they try and extract the RNA, yep. that's contaminated with loads of snippets of DNA. Mm-hmm. And there's no way they can separate it. And mm-hmm. the DNA potentially can get incorporated. And so it's just, it's like, it's like thalidomide but much, much worse. But we don't know what the outcome will be. Yeah, yeah. But to we have to found out. Which then, then if we look at these hate speech laws, we look at um, oh. you know, the, the othering of people with contrarian opinions, this minority report, this, this pre-crime sort of stuff. And now you add in what the WHO is trying to do with vaccine passes and then add in to all of that on top of that this social credit type system that the Chinese have got. We're heading towards a totalitarian system of government of the world and of people and of individuals that is nothing at all like what we saw in the 30s and 40s. It's far more insidious and far more manipulative. And people, It's global. Yeah, it's global. It was isolated to Europe, you know, in Japan. Yeah. We had a world war, but vast amounts of places in the in the globe weren't affected by the war. But mm. this is going to affect everybody. If we oh, if yeah. they start doing CB, you know, um, CBCDs or whatever, and I go over DCs, yeah, whatever CBDCs, we start doing that and then putting a social credit system on it, like the Chinese, and then people who don't have vaccines or, or who have contrarian views have a lower social credit score. All of a sudden, yeah. You know, you have to be you're a privileged person. You're you're a, a second, a, a first class person with with a credit score that can go and do all of these things. And if you're a second class citizen with a low credit score, you can't do these things. Yeah, that's everything that is a, that we fought wars for to, yeah. to stop this sort of thing happening. And now we're letting it walk through the door open, welcoming it in some places. Well, a financial crash is on the way, and. To a large extent, that's been kind of engineered. And just a brief word on, I mentioned earlier, the central banks and the Bank of International Settlements and their leader is a Mexican guy who's kind of the, he's like the guy at a Monty Python who was having the dinner who exploded. Yeah. He's he's infeasibly enormous. Like Mr. You know, he's no neck. Yeah. <laughs> it's, he's incredible. And they have gone on the record. I have the clip, I can send it. And they've said that the crucial thing about our central bank digital currency, uh, this unit of central bank liability being used by people as cash when we bring it in, it's controllable, programmable. And we can see every transaction everywhere in the world. Right now, if someone spends a dollar or a peso or a thousand dollars, we can't see it. But with this, we will see everything and we will be able to intervene and control uh, anything as required. The That's a video exist. The technologies mm-hmm. exist. I mean, I used to write. Yeah. I used to be involved in creating anti-money laundering systems, right? Banking background, technical background. That's what I used to do. And um, I, you know, I worked with a lot of credit card companies, and they had things like velocity checking. 
real-time mm. velocity checking. So if you if you get, go on a holiday and you don't tell the, the bank that you're going on a holiday and then you, you think, oh, there's a shopping mall there, I'll go to the Dubai shopping mall and you start spending money, you'll find after about five or six stores that your credit card stopped and then your phone rings. So these guys can do that, but they were doing that 10 years ago. They were doing that 20 years ago. And the technology's advanced since then. Bosh. So they know what you're spending, but they also know what you're about to spend on. Yeah. But there's an enormous planetary universe level distinction, which yeah. I, I might point out if you don't mind. Sure. That's your own private, essentially, bank that is technically working with you and they're trying to stop fraud. So that's yeah. the intent. However, when you hand that to the central bank, the commissars at the top, behind the curtain, that's a different universe, you know? So Werner, Professor Werner made the point, and he invented quantitative easing in 1995 as a concept. He published it. He didn't get the Nobel Prize. Bernanke did. But he invented QE1 and QE2 while working for That's where you put the printers of the press up against the window and just start shoveling money out as fast as you can. It is, but his version was very careful and academic and would work after a problem to avoid a long-term recession if done judiciously. However, in 2020, March, they used QE2, which is a once in a century or twice in a century potential use for a benefit, and they flooded the zone with inconceivable amounts of money, right, in a period where the last thing you should ever do is QE2 because yeah. there was no problem and you injected enormous sums of money. That was an intentional creation of massive inflation a year or two down the road. That's what they wanted. And I'll tell you something that you love, Cam, because you're in banking. This was new to me. Werner explained to me the 70s and the inflation and the oil price and I didn't realize that in 1971 and 72, what caused the 70s crisis was the central banks, instructed yep. banks all over the world to start flooding the zone with credit for no particular identifiable reason. And then when the inflation came, they blamed the Yom Kippur War, Israel, and then they needed a better excuse then that war. So Kissinger went over to the Saudi Arabia oil minister, twisted their arm, and you know America ran Saudi Arabia back then, and said, I want the price of oil up 300%. And they did it, right? Yep. And that was to create this, oh, war in the East, crisis, inflation. That was the cover. But you know why they did it in the 70s and why they did it in 2020? This is the punchline. Because they could. <laughs> no. Well, there's a real reason. Yep. I mean... A brilliant, self-evident reason. Cheer. The reason they did it in the 70s was the change, fundamental change in the monetary system from the world's reserve dollar, which was gold-backed, yep. and they went the gold away standard. from gold-backing, Nixon. Yep. That whole monstrosity that affected everyone was to cover the changing of the guard to a new monetary system. And you know why they did it in 2020? The same thing. Because we're going from the non-gold-backed fiat currency, the dollar is dying, we are need to go to CBDC. Yep. So you need a big financial crisis 
to cover the to transition. Fi- to fix the to problem fix. that they caused. Yes. That's now, it, guys. Central now, every, Bank is now, everything it. we've talked about tonight, Ivor, everything we've yeah. talked about, this is in your video, isn't it? The greatest history never told. It it is in that video, but also I'll send you a link to my interview the other day in Amsterdam with Professor Richard Werner, who, yes. who gave me all these extras. Yep. So Werner goes through all of what I mentioned on the central banking cruciality and the history. And he also goes beautifully through how the European Parliament is not a democracy because the parliament can't make laws. The European Commission, which is unelected, makes laws. And it's the exact same as Soviet Russia. They had a parliament, believe it or not, but it was a rubber stamp. The Politburo decided everything. So modern Europe is kind of a continuation, some Russian historians have said. It's a continuation of the Soviet system as the EU has been developed. And the central banks are commissars up at the top who now want to decide on every purchase everywhere for everyone. So if, you just go, so if you just go to YouTube and you put in the greatest history never told, that's how we'll that find will give it. You, and you'll give us a link to the other one as well, which we will include. Yeah, yeah. It'll be out within a few days, but I'll okay. send you the link also. So between, I just say one last thing. Yeah, uh, I'll send you three links. The three most important interviews I ever conducted in the last decade and I've done hundreds with top experts, professors. And my three most important interviews are all with professors, fully documented and referenced, not right. even uh, a whit of conspiracy theory. Oh, come on. The first one is Professor Matthias Desmet, The Psychology yep. of Totalitarianism. Yep. And he, of course, had the mass formation concept. And that explains how everyone goes mad uh, when yep. these bad guys inject a narrative. The second one is Professor uh, Jakob Nordengard from Sweden, yep. and that's the greatest history never, never told. told. And that tells you everything from the Rockefellers to the World Economic Forum and the UN dominance and etc. And the third one now, two days ago, is Professor Richard Werner, the inventor of quantitative easing, who explains all of what I mentioned and more around the central banking place in the power structure. With those three... You have everything around how the world works. There's no gaps, really, no gaps. Yeah, and thank you for coming on with me this morning and sharing all of that with everybody. It's been a pleasure. And uh, absolutely, hopefully, hopefully yeah, we can make this more regular. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, sorry about the Nick thing. Yeah, geez. Oh, never mind. No, I've, been, I've, been, I've been called worse. I've been called worse. Oh, oh I certainly have. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you very much. Good luck, man. All right. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real 
with me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.